It is a lovely Sunday evening, and I have the opportunity to talk with one of my colleagues, Adam Worst, about all things dystopian today. Adam is a creative writing major here at Northwestern, and we actually met in a class about surveillance and voyeurism, you know, the where is Putin now sort of thing. That course certainly has a lot to do with dystopias and dystopian fiction, so I'm so excited to be able to talk with Adam one-on-one about these issues. And welcome back to Diddy and Hawthorne in the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Welcome, Adam. I am so excited to have you on my show. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Sweet. All right, so let's get into the history of dystopian fiction. All right. What say you on history? Um, well, just in general, you know, history isn't exactly my strong suit, but you know, from what we've been talking about in class, obviously, you know, it's a big, you know, initial point for dystopian fiction was obviously um, George Orwell's 1984. Like that's one that's like always referenced. And I feel it's a good like sort of starting point to the general idea of dystopian fiction. Yeah, I think so as well. And I mean, you see writings from like the 20s, for example, and that's all about either paradise or Mm anti-paradise. But those are all based on very real versions of our world, very realistic fictions. And then we get into some speculative fiction in the 30s and 40s, and then, of course, dystopic fiction in the 50s with Ray Bradbury and, of course, George Orwell. Um, And I think what's really pressing to me about the history of dystopic fiction is that you have dystopias before dystopias play out in reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are like those like Mesolithic time periods or places or whatever that were pretty much fascist regimes like the Mayan, the Mayan culture comes to mind. But (laughs) you really didn't have any modern examples of dystopias um, in the real world until the 80s and after World War II. um, Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, the Soviet Union and communist China. And so that's really the hot spot for a lot of dystopian fiction, especially in the class. Like we're reading Hamid's Tale and Buford Vendetta. Um, So it's just interesting to compartmentalize where Mm -hmm. and when these dystopic periods begin. Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, What do you think about now? Why is dystopic fiction popular now? I think... I think just because, you know, with the whole political scheme of things as it not, as it currently stands, it no one really knows, like, what's going to happen and, like, how things are going to play out. So I think as almost a way of, like, forewarning people or at least, like, addressing the tensions and the issues, people like to explore these um, dystopic futures just as a basis for all the struggles that people are facing now and just sort of amplifying them as an extra sense of like warning that these are like serious issues. Mm. And do you think that, because I don't know, I've been kind of thinking about how we say that politically we're in a really terrible place right now, but hasn't that been the case for all of the 2000s politically? And before that, I just think that 
the way that we're talking about it now is more widespread because of media and not necessarily because the political atmosphere is worse. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely like a fair point and a good point too. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, because just having the huge array or accessibility to information, like you're saying, and everyone being aware of whatever's happening definitely speaks to dystopia being, or the fear of it at least, being mm -hmm. instilled. Well, yeah, and I was um, listening to uh, a speaker, his name is Rasul, and he was a speaker at this ministry retreat that I was at this weekend. And he was talking about how a lot of the African-American shooting incidents actually occurred in the later part of Obama's second term and so that whole tension and violence actually started a lot earlier than we're pinpointing now and I think people like to pinpoint everything around the same place because it's kind of convenient for their memories mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah. oh yeah everything started in 2016 but <laughs> that's not necessarily the case and yeah. especially with things like mass incarceration like those things mm -hmm. are at a climax now but they were building up for such a long time mm -hmm. before now yeah, definitely. Good things to know. And then that kind of gets into the Snowden issue, like... <laughs> oh my gosh, I love Snowden, first of all. <laughs> what, what the government is doing with our information and how they're using that, um, and how other companies are using our information in order to kind of target us politically or mm -hmm. give us messages that we want to hear as opposed to the messages that are really truthful and valuable in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, the Snowden stuff is just, I mean, it's crazy just because it is, or at least in the time when, like, all the stuff was coming out and it was a very initial reaction to everything, everything, and everyone was sort of freaking out about it, it was almost like a peek into, like, the dystopia of reality in that sense, which I think is something we haven't had in, you know, present day at such a wide scale and so like blatantly released to everyone so i think that goes along with what you were saying about social media and everything spreading the fears and stuff so yeah yeah how involved were you in the putin stuff when it first came out not, not at all really yeah neither was i i wish i was though because that was something that we both lived through but we just completely missed yeah i feel like the I don't know, the age for me, I was just sort of focused, on, I don't know, because when, when was that? Like, I thought it was like 2007. Okay, yeah, was so I was later? a child, so it's not like, <laughs> even if I were like keying into it, I don't think it would have been for the better for me as a seven-year-old, you know? <laughs> so like, the timing was like during our lives, but it's also like, not <laughs> at a point in our lives where we should be like, I super... Know. But it is sort of a bummer because it almost is like missing out on a big thing despite being alive during it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, like we can say that we were alive during 2001, um, the terrorist bombings, mm -hmm. but we obviously don't really experience. Right, right. For sure. Um, those kinds of traumas. And yeah, I just think that's, um, that's something almost valuable that we've been kind of losing as as future generations come up that we kind of don't 
we're not able to empathize with mm-hmm. this vast future of America, and especially things like the 60s um, and with civil rights and yeah. the 80s with the rise of conservatism and stuff. And that's just something that people don't look at as often. Right. Yeah. To especially um, monitor and influence their own lives because those things are really valuable to inform and not only to educate. Yeah. It just really speaks, I guess, to the importance of history in general. And even into older literature, you know, just looking into what people were thinking in those times and, like, what was being created as a result of being affected by those things. Mm-hmm. And that is why we're talking about dystopic fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how much dystopic fiction have you read, especially um, prior to class? Honestly, not a ton. Um... And more so, like, more modern stuff, like, sort of the, you know, the Hunger Games. Okay, and okay. The I was going to say John Green. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, depending on your point of view, I could see maybe some of those characters being, you know, not ideal, people, but dystopic might be a little off. No, yeah, um, okay. No, I get it. <laughs> um, that yeah, would totally. be an interesting thing to explore. <laughs> John Green as a dystopic novelist. Wow. I think the article we're going to break down in a bit (laughs) may have some things to say about that. Mm. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Uh, Do you want to get into that article? Sure. Let's go ahead. All right. Um, (laughs) Wow. Begrudgingly moves forward. (laughs) So there's this article we had to read for class. Um, It's by Paul... Moffat. Paul Moffat. I thought it was Moffet, but oh, I actually think I... Moffat sounds like Muppet, <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I am going, I'm su- uh, succumbing to Moffat. Yes, yeah. uh, it's called You for Utopia. Yeah, and then a really long subtitle. Yeah, <laughs> something about V for Vendetta. Dystopia's... Utopia. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, and this article... I think part of the reason why we're doing this episode is because they, we are pushing back on this article, <laughs> and this is a vehicle that we can use to push back on it without having this conversation in class, because, right. yeah, this is not a productive conversation to have. No, it's just sort of two people being angsty about something <laughs> we had to read and write about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Paul Moffat, right, um, he is writing in the comic, I think it's like the United Comic journal or something yeah Yeah. he's talking about v for vendetta which is an incredible graphic novel i thought it extremely riveting i'm glad that i was able to read it and write about it not in this context but in general yes um (laughs) and he is saying that v for vendetta which is one of the cornerstone (laughs) dystopias of the modern areas era especially the 80s um he is saying that that is actually a utopia. Yeah. <laughs> I just... One of my biggest issues with the article itself is that I swear literally the only time you really get to key in to like his actual like argument is at the very beginning when he blatantly states it and at the very end where he, he blatantly it <laughs> states it again like referring. And then in the middle it just gets sort of lost in a bunch of like textual references and like um digressions that sort of relate back to it but like not, not effectively really. 
<laughs> yeah. And so what happens then is that the reader is confused about his actual argument. And mm -hmm. so his argument becomes ineffectual. Exactly. Where something really interesting, like recompartmentalizing one of the greatest works of dystopian fiction into utopian becomes drudgery. And that is something that we all want to avoid, especially in our own academic work. Yes. Um, and even in, if you are crafting an argument, say, about... I don't know, um, getting a fridge, a new fridge, right, with your roommate or your father or whatever. Um, you want to be able to craft that argument in such a way that is going to be effective at mm -hmm. the end, right? Yes. You don't want to just go in circles and then your father's like, fridge, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're going to dive into a little bit of how to avoid that and what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, so we talked about history and one of the big things that Moffat talks about is history yes. in *Be for Vendetta*, and I found this super interesting because he does talk in a productive way about uh, Alan Moore's and David Lloyd's history um, yes. politically, especially mm -hmm. with graphic novels, and and also the historical context yes. to when *V for Vendetta* was written. Yes, like very... the, the Thatcher quote unquote regime, as they yeah. would put it, um, and he uses that history. Um, as a sort of background, but he doesn't end up mobilizing it. Mm -hmm. And this is what we, I think, should strive to do, especially when you're analyzing literature. Um, I remember one of the horrifying classics episodes that we went into this month, the 13-minute ones, was uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, and we did a historical lens on that because Allan Poe's life was very, very tragic, mm -hmm. of course, and it begat the sorrow of the raven, um, kind of for our intents and purposes as well. There she is. <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't use yeah. the historical lens at all. He just sort of referenced it, which, like you said, was interesting. And like, for someone who like read the book, was interesting to like sort of look back on what you read and apply it. But he doesn't use that to do anything, really. He just sort of talks about it and then moves on to analysis and just talking about other sources. Uh, Moffat, why? <laughs> oh, Moffat. All right, okay, let's get into this. Definitions of dystopia and utopia. We can do this. Here okay, considering everything, um, what would you define a utopia as, personally? I would say that a utopia is a state of society that is better than current society. I think I agree a lot with L.T. Sargent's um, definition of, you know, that it isn't necessarily that utopia is the perfect world, but it's a world at least significantly or substantially better than present day and what we sort of see as our current situation. I'm going to agree with that, but I'm going to also take it a step farther um, by saying that I think the definition of utopia is an idealized version of society okay. that's, um, it has aspects in it that society can agree on that is like ideal for itself. When you say like a better version of society, that's highly subjective mm -hmm. and that lends itself um, to a bit too much like interpretive. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Um, connotations, which is definitely also a pitfall of a lot of the arguments in the mm -hmm. article is that like one of the <laughs> definitions for utopia was an imaginary place. <laughs> 
Okay, I guess Narnia and, like, yeah. Alice in Wonderland is a utopia. <laughs> That's, like, a definition that, like, just isn't good because it's it's <laughs> yeah. so vague that it's not really a definition even. It's just, like, slapping a label onto it and just, like, yeah, nothing more than that. And this wow. is almost like a fallacy that people I see do a lot, especially on social media. Well, either where either they'll zoom in really close to things to find the flaws because mm-hmm. no art form is perfect, no. you know, and no, um, no thing in this world is going to be completely perfect. Right. Like not even things by machines are perfect. Right. Um, so they zoom in so closely to find that one contradiction or like one pitfall that yeah. they want to find, or they'll zoom out so much that you know, everything becomes similar suddenly. And um, I think that's just not right. And sometimes people do this in clever ways. I Mm -hmm. wish I had an example, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Yeah. I definitely do. Dystopia then, I wouldn't say a dystopia is the exact opposite of that, Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that a dystopia um, rides on, I I do agree with Sargent, like it rides Mm -hmm. on fears, whereas Utopia Mm -hmm. rides on hope or joy. Yeah. And then, okay, what what say you about utopia with an EU? I think that is kind of an unnecessary <laughs> distinction because I feel like I don't know why Sargent and, by extension, Moffat defined like utopia as like an imaginary place and then like had the dichotomy of dystopia and then utopia with an E. Like, that just seems unnecessary. Like, calling something a utopia with a U, like, isn't necessary. Especially talking about, like, literature and stuff. Like, because if it's a a fictitious novel, it's gonna be technically a utopia to some degree. And it's, like, utopia with a U. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um... So yeah, I just think that's an unnecessary distinction, and I think there's kind of a reason why in modern day, like, before this article, I hadn't really heard of Utopia with an E, because yeah, I think it's just kind of excessive. Also, it's not in the Google Dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) When I was writing my essay, it kept coming up as a misspelled word. Oh yeah, yeah. Again, people also make up words and vehicles for them to be right about things even um it reminds me almost of this guy so i talk about revisionist history every single time we record a podcast but it is one of my favorite things in this world and i still listen to the episodes even though malcolm gladwell is working on broken record which i would also highly recommend um Anywho, that was my my peg for the day. There's an episode called The Prime Minister and the Professor from season two of Revisionist History, and it's about a character named Frederick Lindemann. Obviously, this character is real. He was Winston Churchill's best friend, actually. And so um, Malcolm Gladwell makes the argument that you can judge politicians by their friends and by the people they keep in their lives, and that we should be able to, like hit politicians based on their immediate friends because this guy Frederick Lindemann <laughs> he was um said to be actually more brilliant than Einstein wow. um yeah so there's a story anecdotally that 
he and Einstein were both at a dinner together in the college that Lindemann was teaching at and all and a bunch of students were invited to the dinner because it was like one of a talk about you know what the greatest minds in physics right. at the time and after the talk all the students came up to Lindemann not the visitor Albert Einstein oh, wow. but up to Lindemann to ask what Lindemann thought of Einstein. Huh. Isn't that interesting? That's and, really interesting. Yeah, and so yeah. there are all these little anecdotes about Lindemann, which makes him one of the most fascinating characters, I think, in recent history. Um, and also one of the most obscure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, one of his quotes was that he was known to argue an argument that he knew to be wrong just so that he could be right. Like, that was how obstinate he was. Wow. That's yeah. Like, wild. <laughs> like, saying, like, the sky is not blue, and arguing that even though he knew that the sky wasn't blue, and it's obvious that it's not blue, he would still argue that position just wow. because he didn't want to contradict himself. That's yeah. really interesting. And so I think that's the way a lot of times we are, and we don't listen, and instead we argue things that we know to be wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) or think about things that we know aren't right yeah yeah it's just i mean pride human pride is just (laughs) such a thing that results in probably a lot more issues than it's worth like you know hubris is the classic you know greek downfall for a reason Mm -hmm. definitely so my question is, um, what significant purposes do dystopian novels hold outside of being like warnings or prediction or predicting things or like you know being foreboding vessels? That's a good question. Because I feel like that's you know the obvious like reason for it or what everyone always pegs it dystopian fiction to be like mm-hmm. oh we better fix society or else this is gonna happen. But mm-hmm. I feel like there are other, like, values to it, and I wanted to pose that mm, to you. All right. This, this might take a little bit to think about. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think one of the most powerful things about dystopian fiction is the closeness to modern society. Mm. And in that, we see more of a mirror in ourselves. And this isn't necessarily for things like fear and things like... Um, because of The Handmaid's Tale, we can see better women's oppression. Yeah. But I think more so, we're able to see what's extraordinary and ordinary about our situations. Okay. For example, Handmaid's Tale is written by a rather, in Margaret Atwood's words, an ordinary person in an extraordinary mm-hmm. cir- uh, circumstance. Yeah. And I think that we are all ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so being able to categorize that at a basic level as opposed to saying like this is the situation this is Gilead this is Alfred Mm -hmm. but rather breaking it down to like this is a human and this is a normal human this isn't a uh, rights activist in the 80s this is a normal person in the 80s and what they're experiencing and kind of being able to relate on a fundamental level that way and I think a lot of times that's something that normal fiction doesn't give to us Mm -hmm. um um, Fitzgerald's been on my mind a lot lately, okay. and it, the novel, the characters in Fitzgerald's novels, of course, are very relatable, and you can, like, um, Amory in The Side of Paradise, okay. um, he's very relatable, he's a college student, and he is self-righteous, and he's judgmental, mm-hmm. and of course, people can relate to that, but not on the level that, um, not on the level that mobilizes you. 
Um, like I'm not compelled oh, yeah. to think or do things. For sure. I'm not compelled to analyze as a result of this side of paradise, maybe a little <laughs> bit, but yeah, not that much. And yeah. So that's one of the things I think is really powerful. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing too that I feel is sometimes overshadowed by the sort of looming threat that dystopian novels present is sort of the resiliency of mm -hmm. the human spirit. And that sounds really sort of corny, no, but I, I feel like yeah. it is almost always highlighted in books like this or in dystopian novels. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very important thing to like remember and to look at because really all the dystopian novels I can think of are only like fueled toward a possible utopia because people want to fight the oppression and people always want to fight the oppression in these novels, which is <laughs> yeah. really interesting. As they do in real life. Right, as they yeah. do in real life. And it really highlights that. And I think it adds to, you know, the hope that no matter what situation we are in, in reality, that we can, you know, pull through it. Because if they can do it in this horrible, oppressive regime, then of course we can do it in a tense yet still, you know, less manageable. Yeah, manageable yeah. situation or society. Yeah. So I think that's really That's really important. compelling actually, yeah. I yeah. hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and again, like I think we both kind of looked at the novels in a broader perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is really important because especially if you take English classes, um we have a tendency to overanalyze things and yeah. get into like this word probably connotes this yeah. or denotes this uh -huh. and that's helpful for reasons of analysis and again developing an argument especially when you're facing things like the world and oppression and mm -hmm. um, all of these different vehicles in your life but at the same time you do need to be able to kind of zoom out and look at that world and our world and yourself and mm -hmm. your place in that world for sure so weekly favorites um i am reading jailbird by kurt vonnegut right now i'm in the last hundred pages the stretch nice yeah i i don't know if i've ever, I've ever talked about this before on the show but i think the first hundred pages of the book and the last hundred pages are the hardest to read why is that because it's really hard to get started on something. Yeah, okay. And then, oh, you mean just in general? Yeah. I thought you meant just this well, book. Oh, not this book. Okay. All books in general. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, especially books that are longer, like uh, Anna Karenina that I read this past year and One Beauty 4. Okay. Those are both like 1,500 page books. Jesus. And I like power through like 700 pages. And then I'm like <laughs> at literally page 1,400 out of 1,500. And I can't do it oh, anymore. No. Yeah. <laughs> like I lose all hope. <clears throat> and I think partly that's because authors cover a lot of ground in the first hundred pages yes. and the last hundred pages, so mm -hmm. you have to be pretty like intellectually there. Yeah. But also because I think subconsciously people one don't want to start and two don't want to finish. Yeah. Like for this, sure. yeah, the Jailbird is my last Kurt Vonnegut book. I did talk about this. I looked. I went back and looked <sighs> at episode two where we did Kurt Vonnegut, yeah. and. <clears throat> it's my last Kurt book. I've read all of them, including the rare editions. It's like 30, 34, 35 novels. Wow. Um, it's been a journey. Yeah. I read them all in, in a year and then waited two years to finish Jailer. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Gotta hold on to something, <laughs> I, I guess. Wow, that's I, crazy. I'm really upset every page that I read. And the thing is, is it's about Richard Nixon. Oh, Which is, like, wow. my favorite person. <laughs> and that was totally unintentional. <laughs> yeah, so, well, it just happened. I don't know how it happened that way, but it did. Yeah. So that wow. is my weekly favorite because... I have revisited an author that I love and that I come back to. Um, Vonnegut is always my most read author every year. Mm -hmm. I'll take it a step away from that. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it'll be, okay, so I watch a lot of YouTube. Um, like, I just sort of waste my time on it all so the time. Okay. But one YouTube channel that I really indulge in is called... And, Bear with me. It's called <laughs> Amelia Fart. Okay. Um, she is a personality. She wears these, like, long, like, robes almost. And she wears, like, boas and weird makeup. And it's not, like, a character, though. It's, like, it's her, like her embodying, like, her truest self. And wow. it's really interesting because sometimes she'll just do ridiculous things in public, like, dance around and, <laughs> like... Yeah, just crazy stuff or talk about her strange and, like, wild past that she's lived. Or sometimes she'll get really emotional and really connect and talk about issues that I can definitely relate to about, mm -hmm. like, self-image and confidence and, like, just feelings in general, I guess. And it's mm -hmm. something that's really interesting to see someone embrace their like truest self I guess to such a degree in mm -hmm. such a public way you know on YouTube mm -hmm. she has like over 400,000 subscribers oh, man so that's a pretty like, big channel too it is and oh she's really just broadcasting herself and it's really inspiring to me and I'm sure to a lot of her people who watch her so yeah that just always entertains me and brightens my day to see someone yeah. either do like crazy stuff or relate to them on an emotional level. I love that. But yeah. Wow. The last segment is um, related resources. We talked about Handmaid's Tale, Beef for Vendetta, 1984, um, Animal Farm, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Fahrenheit 451. We talked a bit inadvertently about... The documentary, what's it called? The one about uh, Snowden? Citizen Four. Yeah. Um, some other resources that we've been looking at in class are Das Leben der Anderen, Lives of Others. It's a German film about the Stasi. Very exciting. Um, what else? Um, we've also looked in class at certain episodes of Black Mirror, which oh, yeah. frames um, certain dystopias, I guess, in the context of um, technology and the future of technology, which are really mm -hmm. interesting. Archangel, no, just Nosedive, and what other one? The Entire History of You. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oof. Those are, yeah, they're all... Black Mirror is very disturbing, so mm -hmm. be, be forewarned. Um, but it, yeah, definitely very good yes. in, the, in the context of our conversations. Do you have any like personal um, dystopic texts? Um, you mentioned like Hunger Games. Yeah, uh, there's Hunger Games, which I'm sure you are at the very least familiar with. That's a good, I feel like sort of, not lighter, but like easier like to digest yeah. um, in terms of like literary like rigor. Yeah. Um, also one that I like a lot is The Giver by Lois Lowry. Oh, yeah. That's 
I feel like also a little bit more suited for younger ages because I think I read it in like middle school, but it's mm -hmm. also a really good one um, to look at. Uh, it frames things in a very interesting way that also I think is conducive to a more younger uh, protagonist because the protagonist is like only 13 in that book. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting to, it's interesting to get that perspective um, from, you know, a child versus, you know, most of them I feel are more teens or adult uh, yeah. driven, but yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah, and then we mentioned texts like um, the Fitzgerald text, The Side of Paradise, um, and just as comparison texts. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I really me. appreciate you coming down and yeah, talking to me. Yeah, it was great. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there's an episode of DH&I for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalog of episodes, which should be available on whatever podcasting app you're listening on. If you need some guidance, try episode 6 about Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. It was one of our most popular last year, and it is wonderful. I enjoyed making it. 2019 is the year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at Didion and Hawthorne.blueberry.net, except remember that Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at Didion in two N's total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course new projects and episodes relating to DH&I, including our wonderful hashtag love of February series in February. Also stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks time. We will be doing a bloopers episode from this interview, which is really fantastic and I think you guys will like it a lot. Still there? One more thing then, remember that leaving a comment or a view on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton, and I will see you guys in two weeks.